The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So the um, teachings that the Buddha offered, kind of the foundational teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which is the theme that we've been exploring in this class for a long time now. Um, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the, the framing around the Four Noble Truths is, uh, is there is suffering and there's a relationship between suffering and craving. And so, it, it, you know, the first statement in the Four Noble Truths is there is suffering. This kind of orients us around this um, question of what is suffering and how does it happen? And, and that's what, the, what the, the Four Noble Truths are kind of looking at, especially these first two. What is suffering and how does it happen? The, the third and fourth noble truths are a little more um, uh, hopeful, perhaps, or <laughs> uplifting in that the, the third noble truth says that there's the possibility for suffering to come to an end as the conditions that kind of put it into place, the understanding the, the Buddha pointed to is that there are conditions that lead to suffering in our minds. That there, Yes, there are situations in the world that affect us, but the, the, those situations don't have the, the power over us to make us feel a certain way. We can relate to them in many different ways. And we can learn to relate to them in more wholesome ways, in more connected ways, in more um, um, wholesome ways. Um, with compassion, love, care, kindness, um, ease, peace. And, the, and, and, and so there's this possibility for freedom from suffering. There's a possibility for ease and peace in the mind that comes by our uh, you know, kind of curiosity about what are the patterns and processes of our mind that have those responses, those reactions happen. Those are conditioned in, in us. We all have our own ways of relating to experience that have been conditioned from our families, from our cultures, from our own experience, from how we are in this moment. So there's a lot of conditioning playing out, things that are happening in our own minds that affect how we are in relationship to the world. And that is the place where the Buddha points to, this is what we can, where we can um, uh, find a way towards ease of mind, peace of mind. Not that um, that peace of mind doesn't mean that when we see things happening in the world that are unjust or um, painful for ourselves or others, it doesn't mean that we just simply kind of sit back and say, oh, well, I'm peaceful, so that means I don't do anything. The peace that comes, the ease of mind, the, the freedom from the mental reactivity around what's happening in the world doesn't take us to a place of inaction or non-action or passivity or indifference. 
the the word the the word that it um, brings us the the word that expresses what it brings us to is um, is an equanimity that understands that this is what has happened, and yet the 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 heart that is um, in that field of equanimity is not a passive heart. It's a heart that wants to respond, but no longer from aversion or anger. The heart of equanimity is more responsive from compassion and love, wisdom, care. And so this is the, uh, the direction of that, that freedom from suffering. And yet the, the, the Four Noble Truths are oriented around this language of suffering. The fourth noble truth, the path leading to the ending of suffering. And so sometimes in just this language of speaking about suffering, um, um, we might forget that the, this fourth noble truth, the third noble truth, freedom from suffering, sometimes is actually framed, that freedom from suffering is actually called the greatest happiness. That happiness is an outcome of the practice. And maybe not happiness in the way that we're used to thinking about it. Happiness of getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. There's, that's a form of happiness, actually. The Buddha acknowledged that that is a kind of happiness. But he said, in a way, I think what he pointed to is that is the least kind of happiness that's available to us as human beings that happiness of getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. There's a poem in the Dhammapada, which are a collection of um, verses that are attributed to the Buddha. This one says, If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. And yet our habits of mind, it's like the, that kind of uh, familiarity with happiness coming fr- from getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. It's like our minds caught by that, those, those um, patterns and habits, the habit of greed, the habit of aversion. The mind caught by that, that habit or pattern believes that that is the only way to happiness. It doesn't understand when the mind is caught by those those habits and patterns. It doesn't understand that there is a greater happiness. It doesn't trust that there's a greater happiness. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to let this go because, you know, this is all, this is the, as good as I've seen that it gets. And so if I let this go, is there something actually really? I mean, the Buddha says there's something better. But I don't know. And so this is a challenge for us, this... Um, kind of letting go of a lesser happiness. We need to be convinced it's a lesser happiness. We have to, we have to understand it is, there's a, there's a uh, in mathematics and in computer science, I used to be a computer programmer, so this popped into my mind. Um, there's this um, uh, thing called a, a kind of an algorithm in the computer called a hill climbing algorithm that kind of looks, if you, if you got a landscape you know, it, the, the algorithm tries to find the highest point on the graph. It's trying to find the, the, the highest place. And it's very easy in those algorithms to get confused. You come to a high point, and it's like everywhere from there is down. It's like 
You need to have a, 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 an intelligent algorithm to recognize this is not the highest point of the graph. That I have to go down in order to get to a higher point. And sometimes that's the way it feels with us, letting go of that lesser happiness. It feels like we're having less happiness, less ease in our lives as we begin to explore and to search for these other kinds of happiness. And yet we do have access to them. We have more familiarity with them than we think. And so this is a piece of what I want to speak about today is different ways that we do experience happiness that are more wholesome than our familiar way of experiencing happiness. In the fourth noble truth, the path that leads us to this greatest happiness, uh, let's talk about it that way today, Um, there is the teaching of wise effort, which is the place that in the last few sessions of this series that we've been looking at wise effort. Wise effort has two sides to it, much as the a description of that I've just been giving around suffering and the ending of suffering, that there's the suffering states of mind and there's also these really beautiful, wholesome states of mind. In wise effort, there's a, a kind of an exploration of both in the first two wise efforts. There's four wise efforts. The first two focus on recognizing the suffering states of mind, recognizing those things that keep us hooked, those things that keep us caught. I spent quite a bit of time in the last few weeks talking about those things. Noticing greed, noticing aversion, noticing anger and frustration, using mindfulness to help us to become aware of them. We become, one of the things that we become aware of is that they are not helpful. They aren't helping us move in the direction of ease and well-being. That they are caught by this view that this is going to make me happy somehow, but in the process of trying to make me happy, we're actually kind of miserable. And so that side of it is is looking at the suffering. And we spend a lot of time in in these um, meetings and these kind of discussions talking about how to work with our suffering. The second half of the wise effort, though, looks at How do we work with, how do we cultivate, how do we strengthen the wholesome qualities of mind, those qualities that are the opposite of greed, aversion, and delusion, the qualities of wisdom, of love, of compassion and caring. And so this is is where this um, exploration of happiness in this way comes in. If we think about the last time I spoke about um, cultivating these wholesome qualities, these qualities of, uh, I think I spoke about many different kinds of wholesome qualities, just to kind of name some. Um, Many of the lists in the Buddhist um, teachings are lists of wholesome qualities. There's way more lists of wholesome qualities than there are lists of unwholesome qualities. There's, there's a, a few lists of unwholesome qualities. You know, there's the 16 um, uh, defilements in one uh, list, and there's the three roots, the greed, aversion, and delusion. But there's many, many different lists of wholesome qualities. There's the four, um, um, four divine abodes that kind of point to the emotional terrain of a heart that's uh, 
um, connected. Love, compassion, empathetic joy, and this balance of mind, equanimity. There, um, there are the, the paramis, the ten perfections that are wholesome qualities that are cultivated in our lives, in our meditation, ethical conduct, generosity, ethical conduct, um, renunciation, letting go. This is the renunciation piece is about beginning to let go of this lesser happiness. It's letting, letting go of those ways in which we tend to think happiness will come. But that very exploration of that renunciation helps us to find our way to this greater happiness. So generosity, ethics, uh, renunciation, wisdom, um, energy, energy towards this wisdom, patience, actually I'm missing one, energy, no, maybe wisdom, energy, patience, um, um, love, that's a little later, I'm not, I'm not remembering them in order, um, uh, resolve, truthfulness, and equanimity. That's the ten. The ten the, so th- th- there's many lists like this. And so we can think about the happiness, the greater happiness, as being uh, an exploration of both cultivating, finding ways to support these qualities in our hearts and minds. And that would be the, the third right effort, the, the effort to cultivate these wholesome states when they're not here. The fourth right effort is the effort to maintain or to um, support wholesome states that have arisen. And this is a piece I'd like to kind of emphasize more today because I think we do, we do recognize or we will recognize many of these kinds of happinesses and they come up for us more than we might think. Having them pointed to, it's like they're arising, um, when they're arising, when they're coming up, like for instance, a simple kind of happiness around generosity, of being generous, of offering something to somebody. There's a kind of a delight that comes with that. And yet, we may not actually recognize it. We may not actually consciously notice, oh, wow, that's delightful, that feeling of generosity. In fact, in our culture, you know, we tend to squash these things. It's like, I'm not supposed to feel good about being generous. You know, it's like we, we, we feel like that's being selfish somehow. But this teaching is pointing to, yes, it's actually okay to feel good about these wholesome qualities, to actually know them, to feel them in our system. That awareness of them as they come up supports their um, coming up more in the future. So that this, one of the strongest ways, this, this fourth wise effort of maintaining wholesome states that has, have arisen, one of the, the most powerful ways to do that is to become mindful, to recognize these states when they arise. They, they, will, they often have, at least in my experience earlier in my life, they arose and passed without much recognition. I was way more focused on the negative, and I think we do tend to have this kind of negativity bias in our minds sometimes, and we don't take in the beautiful as much. 
And so this is a this is a practice actually of recognizing, kind of orienting, curious about what are these beautiful, wholesome states? How do I notice them? How can they be noticed? And so that's what I'd like to explore today is kind of different ways that we might recognize happiness, different flavors of happiness. How might we notice this? So some of it is just um, having some of these words, which I mentioned last time, you know, becoming aware that, you know, a calm actually is a wholesome state. There can be a way in which, in which calm, we can feel a kind of an ease and a, and a subtle kind of happiness there. And so getting familiar with the, the host of qualities that are named in the Buddhist teachings that are wholesome, that can be helpful just as a way to, to begin to uh, recognize them when they happen. But I'm going to speak in particular about some specific ones. And I'm going to start with where we usually think about happiness, and that is the happiness of sense pleasure. The happiness of getting pleasant things, of getting rid of unpleasant things. This is the place where often we think this is where happiness depends. And getting pleasant things, getting rid of unpleasant things also includes um, not just material things, but having, having people appreciate us, having people praise us, you know, that getting what we want, something pleasant there, getting what we want. And so this is a lot of where uh, we find our conventional form of happiness. And some of this happiness, you know, just to kind of unpack a little bit what this happiness is when we get something that we want. So some of it is that there is the, um, so there's something pleasant. Somebody praises us, you know, it's like there's a pleasant quality uh, in the mind that is in, in relationship to that. Or we get something that we like, a particular food or something. There's something pleasant in that. Um, so some of, some of the pleasure of that kind of happiness is what is sometimes framed as association with what is loved. You know, that, there, that there is that kind of like, we'd like to be in the presence of things that we like. And kind of the flip side, we also like to be not in the presence of things we don't like. So that's a piece of that, of that kind of happiness. And that is, a, you know, it's, a, it's actually kind of fleeting because, you know, the things that we like, like if, it, if we're having some food that we like, it's like, well, that actual, the, the association with that lasts as long as we're eating it, chewing it, swallowing it. And actually, if you really look at the whole experience, you know, the, the flavor goes away after a few chews and it's just kind of this mushy pulp in the mouth and it's kind of neutral. It's the, the pleasure of that only lasts a short time. And so if we start looking at how long the pleasure lasts, we start seeing that it is a lesser form of happiness. That it just, they're so fleeting. The, the, the sense of somebody appreciating us, you know. How long does that actually last? How long? I mean, maybe we feel good about it for a few moments and then we walk away and then somebody else says something else. And where does that one go? Maybe we bring it back in our mind and we get a little, well, that person said a good thing. Oh, I can feel happy again. But it's just this kind of coming and going. We're not, it's not very reliable. And, and you know, thinking about this too, if we are relying on our happiness 
independence on somebody else's opinion. I mean, how reliable are your own opinions? We can see that, that our own opinions aren't so reliable. And so when we are, are kind of giving our happiness over in the world to somebody else's opinion, it's like, that is so unreliable. So we are, you know, so, so just this kind of mental or kind of thinking about this kind of happiness, we begin to see it's not a very reliable kind of happiness. And so we do, we do, you know, so there is a kind of pleasure that comes with getting what we want, getting what we don't want. But the, another piece of that happiness, another thing that's useful to reflect on in terms of why there is some happiness there, why there is a kind of feeling of, of goodness or, 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 or okayness in that moment when we get something that we want. So when there's wanting that springs up, either wanting to have something or wanting to get rid of something, the wanting itself when we start to, to look at this, we start to see, you know, when we, when we want something, when we're caught by the, the belief of wanting or caught by the habit of wanting, that habit that tells us, yeah, get that thing, then I'll be, I'll be good, you know, I'll be happy when I get that thing. When we're caught by that, we are kind of projecting into the future of when I'll get that thing. We're thinking about that. We're not really knowing in the present moment not curious about in the present moment, actually, well, what does it feel like to want something? What's that feeling of, of wanting, leaning towards something? If we start to look at that, the feeling of wanting itself, we see that that actually doesn't feel so good. As soon as wanting happens in the mind, as soon as wanting springs up, there's a kind of a toppling forward, a kind of a, already the, the feeling of wanting, when wanting arises, it's, it's connected to dissatisfaction, that, that something isn't here that, that I want. And so there's a kind of an unpleasant feeling associated with wanting. That is part of what motivates us to act on the wanting, to get the thing that we want. Because we don't like that feeling of dissatisfaction. And in caught, by, caught in the throes of that view or that idea of, oh, I'm dissatisfied, I need that thing, that mind of wanting thinks the only way to get to be, to be okay is to eliminate the dissatisfaction by being satisfied. And so that's how we act. And so in the moment when we kind of act and get something that we want based on that wanting, we get the, the, the moment, the hit of, yeah, I've got that thing. There's the happiness of the association with the pleasant. But another thing happens in that moment. For a moment, the feeling of wanting, the feeling of dissatisfaction goes away. That's a, that's a different part of the equation. We get something we want. There's that association with being associated with something pleasant. But the unpleasant feeling of dissatisfaction has also gone away for a moment. That's also not a very reliable kind of uh, feeling when that feeling of dissatisfaction goes away. But that feeling of dissatisfaction going away, that's a really potent driver, motivator for our experience. And I'd, I'd propose actually in, 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 you know, just curiosity, looking at this in your experience, if you can get curious about in small ways, you know, small ways of looking at the kind of happiness of simple pleasures, like having some food that you like, or maybe, you know, 
thinking about going to get something at Starbucks or, you know, I don't know, something that, you know, just reaching for something that you want. Maybe if it's a simple thing, you could just play with, can I just feel the wanting for a little while? You know, notice the feeling of wanting. When I've explored things in this way, um, at one point I was watching this wanting around wanting to look at people when I was on a retreat we were told not to look at people so much, and so I was kind of looking at their feet. Um, and I really wanted to look at their faces. But I was not doing that. I was kind of forcing myself to look at their feet. But it's, and, and so I was kind of repressing that feeling of wanting. And so, but at some point I noticed what the wanting was there. And so I got curious about the wanting, the feeling of that pull to look at that other person. And um, not doing the looking, but just feeling the pull. And I began to notice that, that, uh, that the, the wanting would come into being. It would kind of pop into being as soon as somebody entered my field of vision. Poof, there it would be. And it was very strong. I'd want to look. But if they wandered off and I didn't look at them and they like went into, a, into the building, it's like the wanting disappeared. And seeing that, Seeing the wanting go away, it was like I was released from a vice grip. It was, you know, the, the, the feeling of that letting go or the release of the wanting was way more potent than the satisfaction I would have gotten from looking at the person. And, so, and yet looking at the person also would have released that feeling of dissatisfaction. And so when we get something that we want, we get this double hit. We get a hit of getting that association with something we want or not with something we don't want. And we get this relief from the dissatisfaction. And these are different things. They are not the same thing. And so sometimes we can play with watching the wanting and see that wanting release. And there is a happiness there when I watched that wanting vanish, that was a different kind of happiness. A seeing and understanding that the letting go of that wanting leads to, it's like I didn't, I, I, it was like I, I saw that I didn't have to have the thing. It's like the, the delusion of that wanting was unmasked in that moment. It's like the, the, the ease of heart and mind that came with the release from that dissatisfaction was so helpful. So, so um, that feeling of being released from a vice grip, that was a different kind of happiness. So the happiness of, of this kind of sense pleasure, um, investigating, being curious about the usual ways that we find happiness, this is one exploration, kind of noticing how it works Noticing the letting go of the wanting being an avenue or, or something that is important about that happiness. And we actually don't need to uh, always follow through on that wanting in order to feel the release from that wanting. That was another big learning from, of my mind. It's like while I was caught in the throes of the wanting, there was the belief that I had to follow through in order to be released from that wanting. And yet that is not true. There, was a, there were conditions I saw in the mind that, that that wanting could release when conditions changed. 
in this case when the person was no longer in the field of vision. I was like, I wasn't motivated to go like running after them, find them in the building and see who it was. It was just, oh, that's gone. And the feeling of release or relief from that. So kind of an exploration around our usual way of finding happiness. And what is it? How... Uh, the, the Buddha offers a teaching on, well, what is the gratification of sense pleasure? That feeling of getting what I want, the feeling of the wanting going away. And how long does it last? So those two pieces, the Buddha encourages us. Notice the extent of the gratification. Another aspect of, or another way that happiness around sense pleasure can happen, that we begin to notice and people ask about this sometimes when, when we speak about, you know, the happiness of something pleasant and that there's, you know, the wanting there and, you know. But there are times that as we begin to kind of just orient to being here, you know, to just being present in the present moment, we begin to taste a kind of, a, a kind of happiness of uh, associated with the physical world, associated with... Um, sense our senses that is not about wanting so there is a kind of a happiness that can come as our minds um, are more um, simply curious about experience you know we might be walking down down the street for instance and just really be present being here and feeling like the breeze on our skin feeling the sun, seeing the pattern of the leaves on the sidewalk and noticing the pleasantness of that. And there can be a happiness there associated with being present that is not about wanting, but is more, it's more connected actually to the mind being willing to just be here with this flow of changing experience. We attribute sometimes the happiness to the pleasantness. But sometimes we can also see um, that that it's the mind in certain situations like this. We can see it's the mind that's at ease that actually allows there to be the witnessing of the pleasant. Like sometimes I've been walking down the street when I'm really uh, attentive and here and just kind of you know, in the body, feeling the sensations, seeing what's happening. And I'll see like this, this pattern on the sidewalk. And it's like, wow, that is like beautiful. It's a, it's a kind of a splash of color and wandering lines. And, and then I say it's a stain. It's like an oil stain, you know, and it's like, it's beautiful because of the mind's being here. You know, so that's, that's an example of a kind of delight or happiness that can be felt through the physical realm, but is actually more about the mind being present. And so I just wanted to speak to that, that, um, uh, you know, sometimes people feel like, well, if there's pleasant experiencing happen, I shouldn't, I shouldn't like, you know, like know that or, but again, this is a, this is a way it depends. It depends on whether there's the, the mind that's like uh, kind of gripping, tense, wanting to hold on, 
or if there's a feeling of openness. So this is uh, of interest, of curiosity, of presence. There are different feelings in the, in, in the experience. And we can get familiar with that difference. There's another realm of kinds of happiness that come in relationship, in relationship to other people. I mentioned generosity earlier. You know, when we we have a sense of connection, that even that feeling of connection is a, is a kind of um, um, quality of loving kindness when we feel connected. And that also is, is a kind of happiness. These feelings of when the heart feels more open. You know, I just mentioned the kind of the, the feeling of the heart being contracted or the heart being more open. When the heart is more open and we are in relationship, there are many uh, different kinds of beautiful qualities of mind that are in this terrain of, of a kind of happiness. The heart that feels connected is more inclined to be generous, is more inclined to be supportive when somebody uh, has a need to offer, to, to, to connect and to have that sense of generosity. There's um, uh, the, the feeling of connection itself, that when the, the heart is connected, there can be, when somebody is struggling or suffering, there can be the feeling of resonating with that suffering, not closing down around it, but resonating with it the feeling of compassion which you know that's it, it's a it's a flavor of the open heart that the heart understands it's uh, a beautiful quality and yet there's a kind of a feeling of ooh quivering or quavering uh, a wavering quality of ooh something feels like it's not quite right although there's not a contracting around it it's an, it's an interesting quality, this feeling of compassion, that it both simultaneously feels beautiful and painful. You know, it's, it's, got, it's got both qualities in there. The, the, the heart, when it's resonating with, with compassion, there's a, there's a way in which the heart understands that as a form of letting go, as a form of happiness. And yet it's not a happiness that's like, eh, everything's great. Because there, it's not that everything's great. There's something there that the heart is moved to want to respond to. And this is this, in this case, this is the in relationship, the feeling of the heart being open and connected is kind of our, for me at least, that's kind of the, the way I kind of measure or, or explore uh, how much letting go is there. You know, is there a kind of a sense of tightness, a little fear around making an offer? Do I feel like, hmm, I don't know about doing that for that person, not sure. So so noticing those things that are in the way of that open heart. Not to judge them, but that, you know, again, the practices of right effort, of looking at the unwholesome, looking at the wholesome, they play together. And so if we see that there's, there's kind of a and part of, the, part of our heart has an urge towards generosity of offering something. And part of our heart is a little fearful about it. Looking at both. Seeing both. 
we, we can explore the being aware of the fear. You know, there, there are times when it might not be the best idea to like give away all your money to somebody or to, you know, to, to put yourself in a place where you can't take care of yourself. So there's some, there can be some wisdom to reflecting on that. And yet to also just be curious about, hmm, is that, what is that fear about? And this is exploring that side of, of wise effort that's it's like being mindful, being aware of those uh, uh, con- contracted states can support us to understand something about them. And at the same time, there, prob- there may well be that, that more open-hearted movement of generosity. At one point, I played with a practice that I would notice. I would just play with noticing. I was working with... Um, uh, just being aware when this impulse towards generosity arose. And so that's noticing the arising. It's like that has arisen. It's like that, that has come up. And I was working with noticing it and then um, uh, seeing, I was playing with, the practice I was doing is whenever that arose, my practice was to follow through on it. And so, and, and it, was, uh, it was kind of, it was a little humbling in that, you know, it wasn't, I mean, there's initial kind of thought of, well, oh, if I follow through on like all of my urges for generosity, then like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to end up giving away everything. But actually that didn't happen. And that was like a little humbling that you, you know, it's like these, these urges for generosity were much rarer than I would have liked to think about myself. <laughs> So, so, so anyway, I was just noticing this and noticing, okay, well, there's, oh, there's this urge for generosity and uh, urge to do that. And so following through on that, there was one point when, when, you know, to to see this and to see what kind of came in, what kind of thoughts came in. And at one point I was in this, um, museum store. I'd been visiting a museum and I was, saw these, these little things. I don't remember what it was at this point, but it's a kind of little toy that was uh, science-y or something. And, and my, uh, my, a daughter of a friend of mine popped into my mind. It was like, oh, that would be perfect for that daughter. And this practice like was popped into my mind. It's like I noticed that urge. And then I saw all of the ideas about Oh, but they would. I don't really know if 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 um, if she'd like it, and hmm, I don't even know if she remembers who I am. And I mean, I haven't seen them in ages. And hmm, isn't it going to be weird if a present arrives out of the blue? And I don't know her birthday, so I can't connect it with a birthday. It's like all of these thoughts came in, trying to convince me not to follow through on that urge. And so just seeing that, so, you know, just seeing that, I just like, okay, I've got this practice. You know, it was a little more expensive than I normally would have spent on that, on that daughter, but it's just like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I just wrapped it up and wrote a little note, say, thought of you and put it in the mail. <laughs> you know, so like, and, and, and then begin, beginning to feel, you know, with something like generosity, there's, there's a lot of beauty in there. There's a teaching around generosity in particular that is, you know, that the, um, uh, the movement of generosity creates happiness in the mind before you're generous, just in the thought arising of, oh, wow, that's something that that, that daughter would love. There was a delight there. You know, the, the thinking of that, of that, of, of, of my friend's daughter and, and the joy that she might experience in getting it. And it's like the, the thought of that was delightful. And then the process of getting it was delightful. 
you know, it's like wrapping it up and sending it off. There was, again, thoughts about that process. I didn't get to see her receive it because it was mailed away. But then afterwards, too, you know, so there's the, the delight before. There's the delight during the giving. And then there's the delight afterwards. I mean, just like now, remembering this, I'm delighted thinking about it. I mean, it's years ago now. I mean, probably that toy no longer even exists. But there's still some delight in remembering that heart of generosity. So this is, this is, a, this is you know, a cultivation of, of this, this happiness. Hmm, I don't know that I'm going to get through all of my kinds of happiness. <laughs> Um, happy in describing one, I get like, you know, caught there. Um, so I, I, the next, I'll just mention another kind of happiness um, and won't go into so much detail in this one in relationship, is the happiness of, of, of ethical conduct, the happiness of non-harming, the happiness of engaging in a way that is not putting suffering into those relationships. There's two kinds of happiness that are associated with that. One is the, um, the recognition that others don't um, need to fear in our presence. There's a kind of a happiness that comes with, with knowing that, that beings can, even if they don't, could feel safe in our presence. And then there's another piece of it that is the, what's called the bliss of blamelessness. That we uh, don't have the... A regret or the remorse of having done something that was harmful. And that's, that's a kind of subtle one. You know, it's like remembering, you know, it's like we, we do, uh, we, we do not harming a lot, but we more notice when we harm and we beat ourselves up for that. And, you know, there is a piece of the uh, beating ourselves up for that that's connected with a, a quality of recognizing, oh, when I did that thing, it wasn't so helpful. But there's also a piece of it that's, that's like, I'm a bad person, um, or maybe they deserved it anyway. I mean, maybe we blame the person for our own unethical conduct. And so there's a, there's a way that, um, you know, that sense of... Um, the the remorse or the regret that happens when we do something unethical you know it it can be it can be useful the the quality of recognizing mm, that wasn't helpful that that can be useful but we usually pile on and that's not helpful and so you know we spend much more time in our day recognizing where we've done things wrong, or we can, it seems like a, a kind of cultural habit in some ways, that we spend more time reflecting about what we've done wrong and beating ourselves up about it, rather than remembering, well, actually, you know, it's like we don't notice when we don't harm. We spend a lot of time not harming, and we don't actually notice that. And so, you know, just beginning to appreciate, you know, like for instance, my, um, my guess is that nobody in here has uh, taken a gun and killed somebody. That may not be true. There could, there might have been a situation where somebody needed to, to uh, kill in self-defense or something, but, but my, my sense is so, so, you know, that, 
that kind of harm. You know, we, we, we don't actually appreciate for ourselves that we are not killing other human beings. The precept in the, in the um, Buddhist teaching around not killing refers m- to more than human beings. But, but just imagine, I mean, just, just even for a moment, imagine what this world would be like if everybody agreed, I am not going to kill another human being. It would seem like we had entered into this amazing, peaceful realm just through that. And appreciating that quality of committing to that. You know, that is not a small thing. That you, and so recognizing there's, there's a kind of happiness, the, the absence of remorse is a subtle, is a, is a, maybe a more subtle kind of happiness. We have the bliss of blamelessness in non-harming. I'll see if I can get to two more in the last ten minutes. Um, um, There's a happiness that begins to happen in our practice. So I've talked about, you know, the different kinds of happiness and sense pleasure and investigating, exploring that. And, and this is touching into the one I'm like talk about the happiness of practice is kind of touching into what I was pointing to of the happiness that might come in the realm of the senses when we are present. So this is, this, that's a flavor of the happiness around practice. That, that it's just like just being alive can be so amazing. As we start to get curious about our experience and, and practice mindfulness, we also can start to experience an interesting kind of happiness in the practice itself around, you know, for instance, working with difficulty. We might begin to uh, understand or recognize, oh, actually, I can notice this reactive mind, this reactive state of mind coming up and not be caught by it. So many times when when we explore this, you know, I talk to people about, well, okay, can you notice right now that there is anxiety happening? Often there's a kind of resistance at first. It's like, won't that just make me more anxious? But as we learn what it means to allow that to be without buying into it, like, oh, can I, can I just settle back? It's, oh, yeah, anxiety feels like this. There's kind of a, a rising feeling in here and a vibratory quality and a little agitation. And as we're noticing that, we can feel perhaps a shift, maybe some space around it. It might feel more like, oh, I can be okay with that. I can be okay with that being here. And we may even start to feel it release. And so there can be a happiness and sometimes it's even as much as joy. Paradoxically, sometimes it can even feel like, wow, look at that. I can see self-hatred arise. Wow, that is so amazing. And so there's this self-hatred and this delight in the seeing of it. And, and you know, so the, the, the mind can begin to recognize the delight in the practice itself, the delight in being able to be present even for very difficult things. 
Well, this is another form of happiness that happens. And it's, it's, this is one of those, those greater forms of happiness. Well, all of these that I'm discussing are, the, are greater forms of happiness. The, the happiness of the open heart, the happiness of connectivity, the happiness of seeing our experience as human experience and not being contracted around it. There's, a, there's such a release there. There's such a sense of, of understanding that we don't have to be at the mercy of our reactivity. There's quite a bit of delight and happiness that, that comes in that, in that place. And then the last one that I'll mention is um, maybe the, one of the most subtle forms of happiness and a, a related in a way to the, where I said, you know, n- the happiness of non-harming. We don't often notice that. There's the happiness of not suffering. It's, uh, it's often a more subtle form of happiness. Again, we, we tend to recognize when we feel really good or we feel really difficult, you know, things feel difficult. We, we notice those things, but we don't tend to notice when it's just like, well, things are okay. It's like our, our mind just kind of checks out there. It, it doesn't actually connect when it's just okay. Just like, well, I'm not suffering right now. It's like there was one one time in one sitting meditation uh, where I kind of got a sense of the mind that oriented away from that okayness, um, the habit of mind that, that tended to do that. I was, you know, I was on a long retreat. It was a, it was a, I had been meditating for quite a while, you know, a couple weeks at least. It was a three month retreat, and there was a bit, there was a little bit of calm coming in. You know, it's like there was, you know, so finally the mind was beginning to settle down and I was experiencing some calm. And I noticed that. There was a little bit of the knowing of that happiness of that. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, calm. And what my mind did with that was, oh, this is the perfect time to pay attention to that pain in my back. (laughs) Instead of really orienting to, oh, this is calm. Wow, that feels different. This is what calm is like. It's like I chose to shift to something painful. This is often what we do. It's like there was an okayness there. And just staying with okayness was like, that was like not in my realm of like, of practice. It was not in the realm of what I was used to doing. And so there's lots of ways we can play with this. And I'll just give you an example of, of how this, you, you might be able to play with this and just do a little thought experiment right now. So imagine you have broken your leg. You have a cast on, a full cast up to your hip. Kind of hard to get around, you know, probably can't drive, got to get somebody to drive you. Hard to get in and out of bed. Got to use crutches. You know, kind of hard to balance. If you, you know, maybe you can lean against the kitchen counter when you're making something, but there's this like big weighty thing there. Got to move to the refrigerator. It's like a big deal. It's a challenge having this broken leg. And then imagine now, poof, the cast is gone. You're able to walk again. It's like the delight of that the freedom of movement, the absence of that difficulty. How does that feel? feels pretty delightful. 
But here we are. We're all walking around with ease of movement. We don't typically notice that. We're not noticing the okayness of the ability to stand up with ease. We're not noticing the okayness of being able to walk from here to there. When we notice something, we tend to notice, oh, when I get up, I feel that little pain in my back. So we, we orient to the non-okayness. And so there's this, this can be a little bit of a kind of an exploration force, a stretching in our minds. There's lots of moments of non-suffering that happen. And so kind of beginning to be curious about where, it, you know, what does it feel like to not be suffering? You know, some, some, sometimes uh, I find transition times are good to check in with this. Or it's like when you finish something, finish, finish um, you know, a meal or something. You know, there's, there's a sense of, okay, that's done. And then, you know, take a moment to, to check in. How are you at the end of that thing before you move to the next thing? Often we, we, we skip over transition moments. It's like, oh, I've got to do all this stuff. I've got to do these dishes. We miss a kind of a place of okayness. Maybe when you're sitting at a stoplight, there may be the thoughts of, oh, got to get somewhere, got to do something. But also what I've learned from playing with this particular practice is that sitting at a stoplight, it's like, oh, I don't have to do anything right now. It's like light's taken care of this for me. I can't go forward, but you know, yeah, I can sit here and just breathe and there's not a lot of suffering right now. Just finding ways to connect with the ways in which suffering is not happening. It's so much more pervasive. How does it feel when there's nothing wrong? It's a subtle form of happiness. And sometimes we have to find, we might have to kind of talk ourselves through well, yes, there are these things that I think are wrong, but these things that are not wrong. It's almost like the, 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 the practice of counting your blessings or count, you know, what are you grateful for? We don't often recognize those things. That, that can be a way to, to touch into what's not wrong right now. It's like, mm, I've got, okay, what's, what's not wrong? You know, what are, what are some of my blessings? You know, I've got a home that I can go to. I've got food in the refrigerator. The roof was just replaced, so it's not going to be leaking. You know, so there's these, 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 these areas of non-suffering that we don't often think of reflecting on. So, you know, reflecting, maybe taking some time to reflect on, what are you grateful for? The simple things you're grateful for. And then letting yourself to connect to, that is part of your reality, the non-suffering connected with, with those So it's time to stop. Thank you for your attention.